Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 15th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I made some technical changes at Christagenia this past week. Actually, I made quite a few. You're not going to see all of them, of course, only some of them. One is a relocated chat server, the text chat server that a lot of our listeners use during our live programs. The address has changed. It's now SSL enabled. It's HTTPS, and it's logos.christagenia.org. If you have used the chat server over the last several months and bookmarked a link, your bookmark link is probably not going to work. So use the link on the front of the website and make a new book, make a new book bookmark. As I said, when I started the server, it was experimental and now it's really not experimental any longer. I'm going to use it Yahweh willing for quite some time into the future. We'll see. This evening, we are going to present or discuss what's in a name. And this is really a representation of one of Clifton's papers. Identity Christians are sometimes perceived as Judaizers, at least those of us who often prefer to use certain biblical Hebrew terms in place of more modern English or Greek terms. This is especially true when it comes to the use of certain Hebrew names and titles for the God of Israel or for Christ. But to me, it is a much more dangerous heresy to be a Judaizer in the implementation of certain doctrines and concepts that are really only derivatives of the Old Covenant reliance on ceremonies and rituals, rather than to be called a Judaizer on account of a preference for a couple of names or words. To Judaize is one thing, but to lay claim to a heritage which rightfully belongs to many white Europeans and which never actually belonged to Jews is something totally different. And that's the primary reason why I insist on using the name Yahweh, the Old Testament name of our both Testament God. So here we are going to present and hopefully expand on a paper written by Clifton Emmerheiser titled, Which Is It, Lord or Yahweh? But Clifton really did not write this paper. He only wrote the first paragraph, and the rest was simply a reproduction of an article from the 1910 edition of Encyclopedia Britannica. Then he sent this to me to proofread in the spring of 2004. And doing that, I made some brief comments, which he then added as a conclusion to the article. Making this presentation, I will rearrange some of those notes this evening, and I will certainly also add many others. 
When Clifton presented this, he was addressing people such as the Christian identity pastor Pete Peters and a few others who despised and sometimes even mocked the use of the name Yahweh as being a Jewish ploy. And Clifton only sought to show the historicity of the use of the name in order to prove otherwise, that it certainly should not be mocked. You mock the name Yahweh and you are actually mocking that Old Testament, or I should say, both Testament God. So this is Which Is It, Lord or Yahweh, by Clifton Emmerheiser. Many today are struggling with this very question. What other subject could be of more importance than the very name of our Creator? Maybe the following article will solve some of your uncertainties. If one wishes to find information on the term Yahweh, it is somewhat hard to find. One reason is because in most encyclopedias it is listed under Jehovah. Also, in later up-to-date encyclopedias, the information is rather suppressed. This is important. Any culture or people can worship a god or a lord. And the word Baal does actually translate to lord. But that does not necessarily mean that one's lord is Baal. Another word meaning Lord, which the Old Testament scriptures often used in a positive sense, is Adon or Adonai. That word appears, for example, in Psalm 110 in verse 1, in a passage cited by Christ in reference to himself. So generic titles can be acceptable. But when generic titles are substituted for distinct and proper names, one person may mistakenly, mistakenly believe that another person worships the same God. That helps pave the way for the international and interracial diversity and imagined cooperation which we see in society today, imagined cooperation between the races. And I say imagined because it's not real. As soon as certain races start getting, stop, I'm sorry, stop getting freebies and handouts, they cause nothing but problems. And there's no cooperation at all. But in that imagined cooperation, in that international and interracial diversity, which has made, been made possible because the faith has been secularized and expressed in terms that are milquetoast, generic terms that every race and people can share in common, that, in turn, has served as a means to destroy Christendom. Muslims can claim to worship God, but their God is not the God of the Bible, regardless of what they claim.
And this is true of other races and cultures as well. If we do not see the danger and the damage which this situation has caused to our Christian society, then we simply do not see. So now, returning to Clifton. The following is a rather thorough but not perfect article on this subject found in the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, printed in 1910. We will not use the entire article, as toward the end they get mired in the errant criticisms of the 1800s humanists. Otherwise, this article brings to light many historical facts on the topic. But like all testimony, it must be scrutinized. Now, there are many footnotes in this article, which Clifton changed into paragraph notes and included in his presentation, but most of them are rather um, mundane and tedious, and I probably won't be mentioning the footnotes. The source is rather dated, this 1910 encyclopedia, and many archaeological discoveries giving us further insight into the historical use of the name Yahweh had not yet been made when this article was written, so we will present at least some of the pertinent information to bring this presentation up to date. Now to present the Britannica article. Jehovah, or as they say, Yahweh, and here there is one footnote that I will repeat. It says this form, Yahweh, as the correct one, is generally used in the separate articles throughout this work. Jehovah, or Yahweh, in the Bible, the God of Israel. Jehovah is a modern mispronunciation of the Hebrew name, resulting from combining the consonants of that name which they have as J-H-V-H, but it's Yod, and it's better translated as an I or a Y. Technically, it's much better as a Y, because it's not a true vowel. Y-H-V-H is the way that I always spell it. Adonai came, resulting from combining the consonants of that name, Yahweh, with the vowels of the word Adonai, or Lord, which the Jews substituted for the proper name in reading the scriptures. In such cases of substitution, the vowels of the word which is to be read are written in the Hebrew text with the consonants of the word which is not to be read. The consonants of the word are to be to be substituted are ordinarily, ordinarily written in the margin. But inasmuch as Adonai was regularly read instead of the ineffable name Yahweh, it was deemed unnecessary to note the fact at every occurrence. When Christian scholars began to study the Old Testament in Hebrew, if they were ignorant of this general rule or regarded the substitution as a piece of Jewish superstition, Reading what actually stood in the text, they would inevitably pronounce the name Jehovah. It is an unprofitable inquiry who first made this blunder. Probably many fell into it independently. 
The statement, still commonly repeated, that it originated with Petrus Galatinus in 1518 is erroneous. Jehovah occurs in manuscripts at least as early as the 14th century. Now, in spite of the profession of the footnote that Yahweh is the correct spelling of the name, the article is found under Jehovah in volume 11 of the edition, and there is no entry under Y for Yahweh redirecting to this article where it would be expected to be found in volume 28 of the edition. As a digression, when I moved Clifton's library in September 2017, I retrieved this set of Encyclopedia Britannica from a shelf in his basement, as it is in very poor condition, but I saved it. The 1898 ninth edition was in much better condition, evidently being bound with much better materials. The Jews really skimped on this one or I should say, whoever was running Encyclopedia Britannica in 1910, really gave this edition a cheap printing job. Or I should say a cheap binding, because it's falling apart. It's just disintegrating. Continuing with the article, the form Jehovah was used in the 16th century by many authors, both Catholic and Protestant, and in the 17th was zealously defended by Fuller, Gattaker, Lewiston, and others against the criticisms of such scholars as Drusius, Capellus, and the elder Buxdorf. It appeared in the English Bible in Tyndale's translation of the Pentateuch in 1530 and is found in all English Protestant versions of the 16th century except that of Coverdale in 1535. In the authorized version of 1611, it occurs in Exodus chapter 6, in the 133rd Psalm, in Isaiah chapter 12 and chapter 26, besides the compound names. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom, elsewhere in accordance with the usage of the ancient versions, Jehovah or Yahweh, this is only the tetragrammaton, Yahweh is represented by Lord, distinguished by capitals from the title Lord, which is the Hebrew word Adonai, and that's how the King James Version had is printed in all of the editions that I can remember, where if Lord is translated from Yahweh, the word appears in all capital letters. But if Lord comes from Adonai, which is a proper translation, it only has a capital L, usually, if it's in reference to God. Or sometimes a small L if it's a title for a man who's a lord. And the rest of the words are in lowercase. The rest of the letters are in lowercase. So that you can see that that's only Adonai. Continuing with the article. In the revised version of 1885, 
Jehovah is retained in the places in which it stood in the AV, the original King James Version, and is introduced also in Exodus chapter 6, Psalm chapter 68, or Psalm 68, Isaiah chapter 49, Jeremiah chapter 16, and Habakkuk chapter 3. In the actual text which I'm reading, you'll see the entire chapter and verse numbers. The American committee which cooperated in the revision desired to employ the name Jehovah wherever Yahweh occurs in the original, and editions embodying their preferences are printed accordingly. Some people might call that a sacred names Bible. Here we see that many of the earliest Protestant Christian scholars had written Jehovah, which is what they thought was the proper English form of the name of the God of the Bible, into their translations of the Old Testament. If they had known better, they certainly would have written the more proper form, which is Yahweh. So the earliest Protestant Christian scholars were sacred name users in their translations of the Old Testament. Later we shall comment at greater length on the difference between the two forms, Yahweh and Jehovah. Continuing with the Britannica article, several centuries before the Christian era, 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 I'm sorry, the name Yahweh had ceased to be commonly used by the Jews. Some of the later writers in the Old Testament employ the appellative Elohim, or God, prevailingly or exclusively. A collection of psalms, and they're listing psalms from 42 through 83, was revised by an editor who changed the Yahweh of the authors into Elohim. Observe also the frequency of phrases such as the Most High, the God of Heaven, or the King of Heaven in Daniel, and of Heaven in First Maccabees. And I must say that the name Yahweh does often appear in Daniel, in spite of the other titles which were employed. And there's probably a reason for that. I didn't check every occurrence, but I did notice when I was preparing this I did notice summarily that those titles seem to be used when Daniel is speaking to pagans, to Nebuchadnezzar or others, where when Daniel is not speaking to Babylonians or Persians, that the name Yahweh is used. So I should make a deeper study of that. I didn't Make a, make a study at all, I just glanced at it, but that's what it appeared to be. So there's probably a reason for that in Daniel. The name Yahweh often appears in Daniel, in spite of those titles being used in some places in Daniel. But 1 Maccabees was written originally in Greek, apparently, and possibly not until the same period when the name was beginning to be prohibited. 
as it is certainly within the several centuries before the Christian era, which the article admits. Perhaps this information comes from examining the letter of Aristeus, which dates to the second century BC and in which the name Yahweh does not appear. And we will discuss that writing further on in this presentation this evening. Again, continuing with the Britannica article, the oldest Greek versions, meaning the Septuagint, from the 3rd century BC, consistently use Kyrios, or Lord, where the Hebrew has Yahweh, corresponding to the substitution of Adonai for Yahweh in reading the original. In books written in Greek in this period, meaning wisdom, which I don't believe was, the wisdom of Sirach was written close to that period, but not the wisdom of Solomon, and 2nd and 3rd Maccabees. As in the New Testament, Kyrios takes the place of the name of God. And this is not true. This paragraph, they may have perceived to be true in 1910, but later on in this presentation, we will discuss evidence that was not available when this article was written. Furthermore, they didn't have these, that there are no surviving manuscripts which have curios, which are that old. So they're really um, speculating or conjecturing on something which they did not actually know. They did not actually know that Septuagint manuscripts from the 3rd century B.C., only contain the word curios and not the tetragrammaton or Yahweh. They didn't actually know that because no manuscripts from the Septuagint that old have ever been found. The oldest complete manuscripts of the Septuagint, which contain the word curios in place of the name Yahweh, only date to the 4th century AD. There are no manuscripts of the Septuagint from before the 4th century AD, except for fragments of Origen's Hexapla, which dates to the very early 3rd century AD. But there, you can't go back to 300 BC and say that, or, or 200 BC, and say that the Septuagint only used curios, because no manuscripts from 200 BC survive. None. Zero. So I don't know how they could say that, but they were awfully confident saying that. Now, now it can be said that the oldest Greek copies discovered by archaeologists long after this article was published did use forms of the Hebrew tetragrammaton rather than curios or lord. And we will discuss that at length later. But for now, continuing with the Britannica article, Josephus, who as a priest knew the pronunciation of the name, declares that religion forbids him to divulge it. And that is true at the time Josephus wrote about 90 AD. Philo, Philo Judaeus, 
was a Gnostic. He was a proto-Gnostic. He was a Gnostic before the Gnostics. Sometimes I think the sect actually formed around him, but I can't prove that. But Philo died, I think, about 36 to 40 AD in there. It is when he passed. So his writing probably precedes the ministry of Christ by at least a couple of years around there. It's close. Philo calls it ineffable, meaning that it can't be expressed. That's what the Jews call it to this very day. They call the name of Yahweh ineffable. Martin Luther constantly swiped at them for that. Philo calls it ineffable and says that it is lawful for those only whose ears and tongues are purified by wisdom to hear and utter it in a holy place, that is, for priests in the temple. And in another passage, commenting on Leviticus chapter 24, verse 15, he said, If anyone, I do not say, should blaspheme against the Lord of men and gods, but should even dare to utter his name unseasonably. Let him expect the penalty of death. So that's Philo's attitude towards the name of Yahweh, which the Jews basically still have to this very day. As we shall cite below, Josephus attested in Greek that the Hebrew name Yahweh may be pronounced with four vowels, meaning four Greek vowels. In Greek, it would be quite difficult to spell or pronounce Jehovah with four vowels or with any amount of vowels, but Yahweh may easily be represented with four Greek vowels. Returning to the Britannica article, Various motives may have concurred to bring about the suppression of the name, an instinctive feeling that a proper name for God implicitly recognizes the existence of other gods may have had some influence, and that's just bullshit. They're making excuses for the Jews. Reverence and the fear lest the holy name should be profaned among the heathen were potent reasons, but Yahweh refutes that reason in the books of the prophets. But probably the most cogent motive was the desire to prevent the abuse of the name in magic. If so, the secrecy had the opposite effect. The name of the God of the Jews was one of the great names in magic, heathen as well as Jewish, and miraculous Efficacy was attributed to the mere utterance of it. And of course, that's just more Jewish hocus-pocus. In my opinion, it is probably no coincidence that the name of Yahweh began to be suppressed by the Judeans around the same time that the Israelites of Jerusalem under the Maccabees had begun absorbing the Canaanites and Edomites of Judea, and forcing them to comply with what may then be called Judaism. Earlier, 
in Old Testament times, the name Yahweh appears on inscriptions which were apparently common. So it is evident that the name was used by the common people. But the Judeans of the first century, namely Philo and Josephus, clearly state that it was forbidden in their own time. Back to our Britannica article. In the liturgy of the temple, the name was pronounced in the priestly benediction, citing Numbers chapter 6, after the regular daily service. In the synagogues, a substitute, probably Adonai, was employed. It was also pronounced on the Day of Atonement. The high priest uttered the name ten times in his prayers and benediction. In the last generations before the fall of Jerusalem, however, it was pronounced in a low tone so that the sounds were lost in the chant of the priests. And they're citing Talmudic references in order to support these statements. I am not going to pursue the citations from Talmudic literature because I really do not care what the Jews think about the suppression of the name or how they justify it. The plain truth is that they did suppress it, and traditional Roman Christianity from at least the 3rd century had supported that suppression. Although the early apostles were apparently constrained by it, which we shall also discuss. Continuing with our Britannica article. After the destruction of the temple the in 70 AD, the liturgical use of the name ceased. But the tradition was perpetuated in the schools of the rabbis. It was certainly known in Babylonia in the later part of the 4th century, and not improbably much later. Nor was the knowledge, the knowledge confined to these pious circles. I wouldn't call the circles of the Jews pious, but the editors of Britannica evidently have a completely different outlook. The name continued to be employed by healers, exorcists, and magicians, and has been preserved in many places in magical papyri. I haven't checked the pages of the Zohar, or the rest of the Kabbalah. Actually, as we have since discovered, the name Yahweh in the form of the Tetragrammaton was also preserved in early Greek copies of the scriptures, until as late as the 3rd century AD, although after the 1st century, the use of Kyrios, or Lord, was apparently more common and ultimately prevailed. Because of the persecution and suppression of Christianity itself by both Jews and Romans, we will probably never have a full picture of the transition. We only know that the Jews despised and denounced the use of the name, as our article now explains. The vehemence with which the utterance of the name is denounced in the Mishnah, the commentary on the law. He who pronounces the name with its own letters has no part in the world to come, suggests 
that this misuse of the name was not uncommon among Jews. The Samaritans, who otherwise shared the scruples of the Jews about the utterance of the name, seem to have used it in judicial oaths to the scandal of the rabbis. The early Christian scholars, who inquired what was the true name of the God of the Old Testament, had therefore no great difficulty in getting the information they sought. Clement of Alexandria, who died, who died around 212 AD, says that it was pronounced Yahweh. He has an extra O in, in Yahweh in Greek letters. Epiphanius, who died in 404, who was born in Palestine, and spent a considerable part of his life there, gives Yabe, I-A-B-E, or in one codex, Yahweh. And that E might actually be pronounced as an E, more likely an E than an A, Yabe, or Yahweh. Clement used five vowels rather than four, which would cause a slight variation in the pronunciation, but the result is still very similar. Yahweh. Being an Alexandrian and living in late 1st and early 2nd centuries, Clement certainly had access to many speakers of Hebrew of the time, whether or not they were Israelites or Edomites. The variation between Yahweh and Yahweh is understandable in the rather common dialectual difference of whether the Hebrew letter Vav should be pronounced as a V or a U or W in English, which we also see comparing other Germanic languages with English or in opinions of how the Latin U was originally pronounced. Some Latin scholars believe that the Latin letter U was pronounced as a V when it was intervocalic. Intervocalic meaning it was between two other vowels. So some scholars of Latin also say that it was pronounced as a V when it began a word and was followed by a vowel. So that would mean that Waini Widi Wichi may have been Vaini Vidi Vici whether it was Waini or Vaini or Wichi or Vici is debated by scholars of Latin. So, pronouncing a word in another tongue with a V, Yahweh, in ancient Greek it would become a B, because the Greeks didn't have a V, Yahweh. Again, returning to Britannica, <clears throat> Theodore, born in Antioch, writes that the Samaritans pronounced the name Yahweh with a, a B, I-A-B-E. And in another passage, Yahweh or Yabahi, but probably Yahweh, I-A-B-A-I. The Jews, Ahia, and our encyclopedia explains that, and the explanation is probably proper. The latter, meaning Ahia, 
is probably not Yahweh, but Ayah. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, which the Jews counted among the names of God. Strong's Concordance has that as Haya, and it is translated as I am in the King James Version. There is no reason whatever to imagine that the Samaritans pronounced the name Yahweh differently from the Jews. This direct testimony is supplemented by that of the magical texts in which Yahbezebeth, or Yahweh Sebaoth, that means Yahweh of hosts, as well as Yaba occurs frequently. In an Ethiopic list of magical names of Jesus, purporting to have been taught by him to his disciples, Yahweh is found. Finally, there is evidence from more than one source that the Samaritan the modern Samaritan priests pronounced the name Yahweh or Yahweh. There is no reason to impugn the soundness of this substantially consentient testimony to the pronunciation Yahweh or what looks like Javeh. They the encyclopedia author spells the first version Y-A-H-W-E-H and the second J-A-H-V-E-H and I would pronounce them both the same. Yahweh or Yahweh. Yahweh or Yahweh or Yahweh is more accurate, I'm certain coming as it does through several independent channels. In other words, there's a lot of ancient evidence telling us that the name of God is Yahweh or Yahweh. It is confirmed by grammatical considerations. The name Yahweh enters into the composition of many proper names of persons in the Old Testament, either as the initial element in the form Jeho or Jo as in Jehoram or Joram, or as the final element in the form Yahu or Yah, as in Adaniyahu or Adaniyah. Some people might say that's Adanijahu or Adanijah. These various forms are perfectly regular if the divine name was Yahweh, and taken altogether, they cannot be explained on any other hypothesis. Recent scholars, accordingly, with but few exceptions, are agreed that the ancient pronunciation of the name was Yahweh. The first H sounded at the end of the syllable, at the end of the first syllable. Genebratus seems to have been the first to suggest the pronunciation Yahweh, but it was not until the 19th century that it became generally accepted. Jenny Broadus wrote in France in 1567. The book was called Chronographia, where that was published. Yahweh, or Yahweh, is apparently an example of a common type of Hebrew proper names which have the form of the third person singular of the verb, and they give examples of that same thing in other names, Jabna, 
the name of a city, or Jabin, or Jamlek, or Jipta, or Jephtha. Most of these really are verbs, the suppressed or implicit subject being El, the name of a god, for which the Jabna and Jabnael, or Jiptha and Jiptha-el. Now, I did not see any profit in further studying these names for this presentation, but the implications are clear that the name Yahweh is a form of the verb translated from Hebrew as I am, implying that he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is indeed eternal or ever-existing. Returning again to Britannica, the ancient explanations of the name proceed from Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Yahweh has sent me, in verse 15, corresponds to Ea has sent me, in verse 14, thus seeming to connect the name Yahweh with the Hebrew verb Haya, which means to become or to be. The Palestinian interpreters found in this the promise that God would be with his people in future oppressions as he was in the present distress or the assertion of his eternity or eternal constancy. The Alexandrian translation, the Alexandrian translation of some of those words in that statement, Yahweh has sent me, <clears throat> is ego aimi ho own, and I'll explain it momentarily. Ego aimi ho own means I am he who is. Ho own apostolkin me pros umas. He who is has sent me to you. The Alexandrian translation understands it in the more metaphysical sense of God's absolute being. And with that, I wholeheartedly agree, even though our encyclopedia writers don't really like it. The Breton translation of that Greek from the Alexandrian manuscript is, I am the being, the being has sent me to you. It may also have been translated, I am he who is. He who is has sent me to you. Now, as the article continues, it rejects this transcendental interpretation of the name where we cannot agree. And they say, both interpretations, he who is always the same, and he who is absolutely the truly existent, import into the name all that they profess to find in it, the one, the religious faith in God's unchanging fidelity to his people, the other, a philosophical conception of absolute being, and this is where they go off course, which is foreign both to the meaning of the Hebrew verb and to the force of the tense employed. Modern scholars, and I really think they're following Jews in that, Jews interpret this materialistically, 
Modern scholars have sometimes found in the name the expression of the aseity of God, sometimes of his reality, in contrast to the imaginary gods of the heathen. Another explanation, which appears first in Jewish authors of the Middle Ages and has found wide acceptance in recent times, and this is why I say that the Jews interpret it materialistically, derives the name from the causative of the verb. He who causes things to be gives them being or calls events into existence brings them to pass with many individual modifications of interpretation, creator, life giver, fulfiller of promises. This is not even really original with the Jews, but Paul expressed the concept in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, and possibly also Hebrews 11, 3. A serious objection to this theory in every form is that the verb haya, to be, has no causative stem in Hebrew. To express the things which these scholars find in the name Yahweh, the language employs altogether different verbs. I wouldn't agree with that last interpretation, which the encyclopedia had criticized anyway. I would think that the objections depend on the way the Jews use Hebrew today, and the Hebrew of the Old Testament is certainly not a complete grammar or lexicon of ancient Hebrew. The objections also pretend to know the motives behind the plain statement of Exodus chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. To the contrary, our understanding directly connects Yahweh of the Pentateuch to the I Am of the Prophets and the New Testament, where we have an indication and can express the fact that the God of the Bible is the same consistent and eternal being from one end of the scriptures to the other. That is also one important reason why the name Yahweh appears in the Christogenian New Testament as a translation of Curios. If other translators have represented Yahweh as curious and then also as Lord, then it must be permitted that curious can be rendered in the reverse as Yahweh, <laughs> continuing with our Britannica article. This assumption that Yahweh is derived from the verb to be, as seems to be implied in Exodus 3.14, is not, however, free from difficulty. To be in the Hebrew Old Testament is not hawa, as the derivation would require, but haya, and we are thus driven to the further assumption that hawa belongs to an earlier stage of the language, or to some older speech of the forefathers of the Israelites. And that's that I would agree with, it certainly does. This hypothesis is not intrinsically improbable, and in Aramaic, a language closely related to Hebrew, to be actually is Hawa, and I'm going to play on that a little later. But it should be noted that in adopting it, we admit that using the name Hebrew in the historical sense, Yahweh is not a Hebrew name 
And, of course, I would agree with that also. And inasmuch as nowhere in the Old Testament, outside of Exodus chapter 3, is there the slightest indication that the Israelites connected the name of their God with the idea of being in any sense. Well, in Exodus chapter 3, the Israelites didn't make the connection. God did. So that their view of the scriptures is a completely artificial view based on false premises. They are actually humanists. They don't really believe the scriptures. It may fairly be questioned whether, if the author of Exodus chapter 3 intended to give an etymological interpretation of the name Yahweh, his etymology is any better than many other paranomastic explanations of proper names in the Old Testament, or than, say, the connection of the name Apollon with Apalluon. That's the name Apollon, or destroyer, with the Greek word Apolluon, which can mean destroyer, in Plato's Cratylus. Just because Plato used it doesn't mean that it means the same in the Bible. Or the popular derivation from Apollumi. Here's a portion of what I had written to Clifton, which he included as a conclusion to his presentation of this article. One thing the commentators fail to see in attempting to find the meaning of Yahweh is the connection between the Septuagint's ego imi and the usage of that same phrase by Yahshua Christ in describing himself. And I give a whole list of passages where Christ said, ego imi, I am. Yahshua used this phrase often, and often it must have vexed the Jews, who surely must have realized his intention where he used it as a standalone phrase in a manner that directly connects him with the I am of the scriptures. And I make one reference to Isaiah chapter 43 verses 10 and 11, but there are many others, including Exodus chapter 3. The opinions given concerning the derivation of the word Yahweh from the verb Hawa, matching the Aramaic, are certainly correct, and I wrote that in 2004. It would be arrogant to think that Hebrew, as the Israelites used it, was the original language of their forebears. Surely both Hebrew and Aramaic had an older, common dialect, to which the word Yahweh belonged. And now I can also add that even according to Wikipedia, modern scholars now generally agree that the name represented in the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, is derived from the consonantal root HVH, which is Hawa. Statement of this agreement is also found in other academic sources, such as an article written for Bible Review by Bernard Anderson, titled, Taking the Lord's Name in Vain. Which name? Sounds, I didn't read the entire article, but it sort of sounds like this very presentation I'm making tonight. While we often profess and can also often document that mainstream academics do not have everything correct, they are not wrong about everything. 
However, as we proceed with our article, it becomes clear that Britannica agrees as to the derivation of the name, but assigns to it different meanings in accordance with the later use of the verb and Hebrew noun forms of the word. I should say later use of the verb reflected by Hebrew noun forms of the word, because the verb itself, hawa, does not appear in scripture. It's an Aramaic word, but it doesn't appear in the Hebrew scriptures. Proceeding, we must bear in mind that the article already admitted that in Aramaic, a language closely related to Hebrew, to be is actually hawa. But it should be noted that in adopting it, we admit that using the name Hebrew in the historical sense, Yahweh is not a Hebrew name. And with that, I would certainly agree. Now we must note that first, Aramaic is not Hebrew. But the two peoples were indeed closely related. And in fact, we see Jacob himself was described as Aramaic or Syrian in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5, where we read, and thou shalt speak and say before Yahweh thy God, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. My father was a Syrian ready to perish is a reference to Jacob. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. The Israelites were not always Israelites, as the name is new with Jacob. And the Hebrews were not always Hebrews, as the name begins with Eber. Most early Americans, being English, kept their language from England, although it has been adapted and now varies somewhat since they migrated to America. We must understand, therefore, that Hebrew must have developed as a distinct language as the descendants of Eber, who must have had a common language with Aram, were secluded from their own remote ancestors. And surely the Israelite version of Hebrew may have been different from other ancient Hebrews. So the two languages, Israelite Hebrew and Aramaic, would be very similar, but each would eventually have different variations from the original. Even the Italian of today is far different from the Latin of 1,500 years ago. So now, in my opinion, the article goes off the path and into a ditch with speculation as to the meaning of the name Yahweh. A root, Hawa, is represented in Hebrew by the nouns Hawa and Hawa. The same word spelled with an extra vav, or the noun, the first noun, hoa, just having a different vowel. And these mean disaster, calamity, or ruin. The primary meaning is probably sink down or fall, in which sense, common in Arabic, the verb appears in Job chapter 37 of snow falling to earth. A Catholic commentator of the 16th century, Hieronymus ab Oliastro, 
seems to have been the first to connect the name Jehovah with Hoa, interpreting it contritio sive pernicias, destruction of the Egyptians and Canaanites. Dahmer, adopting the same etymology, took it in a more general sense. Yahweh, as well as Shaddai, meant destroyer, and fitly expressed the nature of the terrible God whom he identified with Moloch, Dahmer, probably a relative of Jeffrey's. The derivation of Yahweh from Hawa is formally unimpeachable and is adopted by many recent scholars, and it still is today. It has greater merit today, in fact, who proceed, however, from the primary sense of the root rather than from the specific meaning of the nouns. The name is accordingly interpreted, he who falls, translated into Greek as bachelus or meteorite, or causes rain or lightning to fall, in other words, a storm god, or casts down his foes by thunderbolts. So now, they're making Yahweh an, another pagan Zeus or Thor. It is obvious that if the derivation be correct, the significance of the name, which in itself denotes only he falls or he fells, must be learned, if at all, from early Israelitish conceptions of the nature of Yahweh rather than from etymology. And they're trying to turn Yahweh into just another storm god like Saturn. And humanist scholars have been attempting to do that for centuries. This is all based on the presumed primary meaning of a Hebrew root which does not appear in Scripture, as the words which do appear are only derivations. It is much more likely that the name Yahweh comes from the Aramaic root, which the article had suggested earlier, and not from these later nouns. The Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and Ezekiel were all centuries after the time of Moses. And Moses, a man educated in the court of the Pharaoh, was certainly learned in the languages of the period. That's where those nouns appear in the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and Ezekiel. The earliest of them is perhaps 500, 450 years after the time of Moses. Concerning once, returning once again to the article. A more fundamental question is whether the name Yahweh originated among the Israelites or was adopted by them from some other people and speech. Here they get even more off the track. The biblical author of the history of the sacred institutions expressly declares that the name Yahweh was unknown to the patriarchs. Exodus chapter 6 verse 3. And the much older Israelite historian there of that school which attempts to divide the scriptures into separate writers, and it's all really quite meaningless. 
records the first revelation of the name to Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, apparently following a tradition according to which the Israelites had not been worshipers of Yahweh before the time of Moses, or, as he conceived it, had not worshipped the God of their fathers under that name. And in my original notes to Clifton, I said the following, it is apparent to me that the name, which is rather more of a designation, the name of Yahweh, was surely known to the patriarchs before Abraham's time. And, as your article goes on to discuss, so it was found among the writings of other branches of our Genesis 10 race. It was only, and surely with his will, lost to the children of Isaac and revealed anew to Moses and the Israelites of the Exodus. The word bytilus, which has no evident Greek etymology, very much resembles the Hebrew Bethel, Beit often being written for Beth, as is evident in various Septuagint editions. I believe that that word, Greek word, bytilus, B-A-I-T-U-L, with a Greek ending, O-S, certainly is the Hebrew word Bethel. It is apparent that Abraham was raised in a pagan environment, as the scriptures also inform us that his fathers were pagans. Where we read in Joshua chapter 24, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, that referring to the river Euphrates. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Then in Exodus chapter 3, we read, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord, or Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. I am has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. And in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh was I not known to them. All of this shows that the name Yahweh was not known to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. But it does not mean that the name was unknown in even more ancient times. I would assert that because the name was apparently derived from a dialect more ancient than Hebrew, but from which Hebrew had developed, that alone is an indication 
that it was at one time known to the ancients. Forms of it appear in inscriptions from Ebla that predate the time of Moses, and it also appears in inscriptions found at Ugarit. While I am not convinced and even reject the notion that the Ugarit texts predate Moses, even if they do, it would only indicate that the name was known in more ancient times, as the texts from Ebla may also indicate. None of this disturbs a faith in Scripture, as men much more ancient than Moses must have possessed the truth of that same God who made covenants with Noah and Adam. But as the Scripture attests, from the time of Moses, Yahweh revealed himself only to the children of Israel. Some of my original notes to Clifton I would state a little differently today, but I'd still stand by them, without a doubt. Returning to the article. I'm sorry, I sort of temporarily lost my place, only because I'm typing and doing other stuff. I'm editing my notes before I even finish the podcast. I apologize for that. The revelation of the name to Moses was made at a mountain sacred to Yahweh, the mountain of God, far to the south of Palestine, in a region where the forefathers of the Israelites had never roamed. Now, all of this is based on conjecture. And in a territory of other tribes. And long after the settlement in Canaan, this region continued to be regarded as the abode of Yahweh citing Judges chapter 5, Deuteronomy 33, 1 Kings chapter 19. Moses is closely connected with the tribes in the vicinity of the holy mountain. According to one account, he married a priest of the daughter of Midian. To this mountain he led the Israelites after their deliverance from Egypt. There his father-in-law met him, and extolling Yahweh as greater than all the gods, offered in his capacity as priest of the place, sacrifices at which the chief men of the Israelites were his guests. There the religion of Yahweh was revealed through Moses, and the Israelites pledged themselves to serve God according to its prescriptions. It appears, therefore, that in the tradition followed by the Israelite historian, the tribes within those pasture lands, the mountain of God stood were the worshippers of Yahweh before the time of Moses, and that's just conjecture, and the surmise that the name Yahweh belongs to their speech rather than to that of Israel has considerable probability, which I would absolutely and readily dismiss. One of these tribes was Midian, in whose land the mountain of God lay, the Kenites also, with whom another tradition connects Moses, seem to have been worshippers of Yahweh. And that's just not true. In poor translations and a misunderstanding of Scripture, the Midianites were connected to Kenites rather than to the occupation of Smiths. Midian was a descendant of Abraham, related to the Israelites by blood. 
and the commentators assume that Moses did not share his revelation with his father-in-law at some point before the resulting dialogue described in the passages cited here actually took place. So now the article continues with another false premise that Yahweh, the God of Moses, is bound by geography, or perhaps that he is only some local idol that Moses had purloined. Jethro was not necessarily a priest of Yahweh, even though he was a priest. Jethro was more plausibly a priest of the Most High, as God revealed himself to Abraham because Jethro was a descendant of Abraham. Wow, that's right in the Bible. It's right there in Genesis. I think it's chapter 25. I might forget, but Midian is a descendant of Keturah. So come on, this article is making a lot of conjecture and trying to peddle it off as proof that Yahweh just came from Mount Sinai. He was just some local sand nigger god in the south of Arabia, and Moses picked up with him and ran. And that's not what happened at all. So now the article continues with another false premise, that Yahweh, the God of Moses, is bound by geography. It is probable that Yahweh was at one time worshipped by various tribes south of Palestine, and that several places in that wide territory were sacred to him. And this is all conjecture. The oldest and most famous of these, the mountain of God, seems to have lain in Arabia, east of the Red Sea, talking about Mount Sinai. From some of these peoples, and at one of these holy places, a group of Israelite tribes adopted the religion of Yahweh, the God who, by the hand of Moses, had delivered them from Egypt. And and this is a complete Jewish fairy tale, basically. They go on to claim that, in a footnote, that the divergent Judean tradition according to which the forefathers had worshipped Yahweh from time immemorial, may indicate that Judah and the kindred clans had in fact been worshippers of Yahweh before the time of Moses. So in other words, Judah and the twelve tribes were worshippers of Yahweh before the time of Moses by the name Yahweh is what they seem to be saying. And those twelve tribes really didn't exist long before Moses led them out of Egypt. Moses is about the fourth generation from Jacob. It is more likely that Moses, writing the Exodus account after the fact, had only made a prolepsis by calling Mount Sinai, which was also known as Horeb, the mountain of God. A a prolepsis is to name something as existing before it existed. Of course, the mountain existed, but it wasn't the mountain of God until Exodus chapter 19. But Moses, writing this entire account long after the fact, called it the mountain of God right in the early chapters of Exodus. It's a prolepsis. Moses called it the mountain of God in the early chapters of Exodus 
because that was where Yahweh had given him the law a short time later. Other anachronisms also exist in Genesis, such as in Genesis chapter 2, where Moses mentioned the lands of Havilah, Cush, or Assyria in a context many centuries before Havilah, Cush, or Asher, the men for whom those lands were named, had even been born. The name Yahweh itself was employed by Moses in Genesis, even before Moses knew the name in Exodus chapter 3, because Moses wrote these accounts much later than the actual events had taken place. So Sinai is referred to the mountain of God in a context earlier than when it was actually employed as the mountain of God in Exodus chapter 19. That does not mean that Yahweh was a local deity in Sinai before Moses came along. That's ridiculous conjecture. Returning to the article, the attempts to connect the name Yahweh with that of an Indo-European deity, Jehovah or Jove, or to derive it from Egyptian or Chinese may be passed over. And again, from the notes which I sent to Clifton, which he had used as his conclusion, if one may only pass over an attempt to connect Yahweh to the Indo-European deity Jove, it is only because one is attempting to uphold the falsehoods of Jewish and Israelite identity as generally understood. Paul of Tarsus knew better, for which see Romans chapter 1, verse 18 forward. Paul told the Romans that they had the truth of God and turned it into a lie. So Jove, the Romans must have gotten Jove from back when they had the truth of God and they turned it into a lie. Jove is Yahweh. Yahweh, as we would pronounce Jove in Latin, Yahweh. Among the languages of Europe, the V, W, and U were often interchanged with one another, and in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, represented by the same letter. Also, the V often became a B, hence Yahweh or Yahweh here. There was no J in these languages, the J being a recent innovation, even in English. It represents an I in the early languages. The Latin V being a U, Jove in Latin is Yahweh, the equivalent of the Greek Yahweh. I-O-U-E. Josephus, at Wars, Book 5, Chapter 5, Paragraph 7, tells us that the name of Yahweh is in Greek spelled with four vowels, and he must have had Yahweh, 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 or Yahweh in mind. Yahweh, Yahweh, or Yahweh in mind, any of these being a fair transliteration 
of Yahweh. Jove is plainly equivalent to Yahweh. It has been discussed that Jupiter, in the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Classical World, that Jupiter is a contraction of the Latin Jove Pater, and so equivalent of Yahweh Father. It seems to me that the early Christian writers may have gone out of their way in avoiding Yahweh, or even Yahweh, in a conscious attempt to avoid connecting Yahweh with Jove, and probably for fear of the Romans. This is evident in Clement of Alexandria's Yahweh, since he must have known the testimony of Josephus, who distinctly states that the name could be spelled with four vowels and not five. That was my opinion in 2004. And even though I would express it a little differently, a little differently and a little more fully today, I still hold to that very opinion. Now returning to one final paragraph of the Britannica article. But one theory which has had considerable currency requires notice, namely that Yahweh or Yahu or Yaho is the name of a god worshipped throughout the whole or a great part of the area occupied by the Western Semites. In its earlier form, this opinion rested chiefly on certain misinterpreted testimonies in Greek authors about a god, Yao, and was conclusively refuted by Baudison, and we will see Baudison address soon, as he was also wrong. And Yao is actually, and Baudison could not have known this, Yao was actually one of the transliterations of the Hebrew tetragrammaton, of the Hebrew name Yahweh, into Greek manuscripts of the Septuagint, where today they say Curious, Curios, or Lord. <coughs> Recent adherents of the theory build more largely on the occurrence in parts of this territory of proper names of persons and places, which they explain as compounds of Yahoo or Yah. The explanation is in most cases simply an assumption of the point at issue. Some of the names have been misread. Others are undoubtedly the names of Jews. Clifton has in a note here. Israelites, because that's what it should say. Ancient Israelites were not Jews. There remain, however, some cases in which it is highly probable that names of non-Israelites are really compounded with Yahweh. The most conspicuous of these is the king of Hamath, who in the inscriptions of Sargon is called Yabidi and Elubidi asking us to compare Jehoiakim with Eliakim. One of those names is Akim with Yahweh in front of it. The other one's Akim with El in front of it. So El meaning God. Yahweh is God, or Jehoiakim. Azriah of Jaudi, 
Also, an inscription of Tiglath-Pileser, who was formerly supposed to be Azariah of Judah, <clears throat> is probably a king of the country in northern Syria, known to us from the Zanjili inscriptions as Yadi, J-A-apostrophe-D-I. There's a footnote stating that the form Yahoo or Yaho occurs not only in composition, in names, but by itself, and that's in the certain Aramaic papyri discovered at Aswan. They state that Yaho is doubtless the original form of Yao, frequently found in Greek authors and in magical texts as the name of the god of the Jews. And Yao is a shortened or contracted form of Yahweh. And I will comment on that a little later. This last paragraph reveals the author's ignorance concerning certain historical facets of scripture. The scriptures attest that Israel had controlled Hamath and other areas north of Palestine at this point in history, <clears throat> for which see 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? The Israelites controlled these areas from the time of David and Solomon, but had lost them to the Assyrians earlier. And Jeroboam too recovered them once again until the time that the Assyrians invaded Palestine and finally conquered both Israel and most of Judah. <clears throat> so where personal names in those areas are Israelite names, it is not fanciful to imagine that they belong to actual Israelites. And the final premise of the article is also wrong. <clears throat> now I'm going to cite a paper from a mainstream academic, Albert Petersma, who is a professor of Septuagint and Hellenistic Greek at the University of Toronto. In 1984, he wrote an article titled Curious, the Greek word for Lord is Curious, Curious or Tetragram, a renewed quest for the original 70. 70 in Roman numerals is the Septuagint, the Greek version of ancient Hebrew scriptures. Of course, like all academics, he has his critics, but we will not have time, nor do we have need to address them here. In that article, Peter Sma presents the more recently discovered surviving evidence that the earliest copies of the Greek Septuagint actually represented the name of God, Yahweh, in the Hebrew characters of the Tetragrammaton, rather than by the Greek title Curious or Lord. He also cites the letter of Aristeus, which provides a sort of subplot for his article. 
Although the theme would be more useful if it is read in Greek than in English. And he also cites Josephus, Philo, and several other early writers. He also addressed Baudissin, whom our Britannical, Britannica article had cited as an authority on this subject. But Baudissin received his doctorate in 1870 and died in 1926. So he also lacked the archaeological data which our Britannica article had lacked. Therefore, in his opening paragraph, Peter Sma, which is actually a Flemish name, Peter Sma wrote, when more than 50 years ago, Wolf Wilhelm Graf Baudissin wrote his massive work entitled, Curious as the Name of God in Judaism and its Place in the History of Religion. He arrived at the conclusion, on the basis of his extensive, detailed, and at times belabored investigation, I believe it was published in four volumes, that, that the ancient Septuagint read Curious as a surrogate for Yahweh, and not a form of the Hebrew tetragram, as had been maintained as far back as origin. Since his time, however, the claim for an original tetragram, either in Semitic guise or in Greek transliteration, is being reasserted by an increasingly growing number of scholars. The reasons for the revival of a theory already espoused by antiquity's great Hebraizer, a reference to origin, are well known. Important early Greek texts have recently come to light on both Egyptian and Palestinian soil, which give us proof positive that the tetragram was indeed employed in pre-Christian biblical manuscripts. Hence, Baudison must be wrong and origin must be right. <clears throat> And I would say that even Origen wasn't wrong about everything. He was actually right about quite a few things. Later in his article, Peter Sma quoted from the early Christian writer Origen, who wrote in the early 3rd century. But the passage which he quotes from Origen is from a work which exists only in Greek and in Latin, from volume 12 of the Patrilolite, I'm sorry, Patrologiae Cursus Completus, published in the 1860s by Jacques Paul Minga, or Migna, Migna, I believe. I can't pronounce French, and obviously I don't really pronounce Latin very well. I'm sorry. Jacques Paul Minga was a French Catholic priest. This is the most ambitious effort to ever to have ever preserved the writings of the so-called Church Fathers, of which the Anti-Nicene portion was printed in 18 volumes, and seven of those were from the writings of Origen. The entire collection covers Christian and Catholic writers through the 15th century and is contained in 161 volumes, a few of which also had multiple parts. Some of the volumes had multiple parts. I think it was 166 
books. This is important to note as it shows that this work is even more voluminous than the English translations which we have in the collections of the Anti-Nicene, Nicene, and Post-Nicene Fathers, which were edited by Alexander Roberts and James Donaldson, and first published in the late 19th century by T.N.T. Clark in Edinburgh. First, in Peter Sma's paper, he cites relevant evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls and other sources that at least some early copies of Greek scriptures employed the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, or a transliteration of it, rather than the Greek word Curious, or Lord. Then, he states that, interestingly enough, as we indicated earlier, the originality of the tetragram in the Septuagint is not a modern theory. No less a textual authority than Origen put forth the same claim. Origen, the third century Christian writer. <clears throat> Then, according to Peter Sma's translation of a statement by Origen, found in volume 12 of the Patrologiae Cursus Completus, in column 1104b, which I have been able to verify, and I will upload a copy of it with this podcast, but it's only in Greek, I'm sorry, he records that Origen had written that in the more accurate exemplars of the Septuagint, the divine name is written in Hebrew characters, not, however, in the current script, but in the most ancient. So, in the third century, Origen had informed us of something which we can verify today in modern archaeology, to at least some small extent. But before the 20th century, and the discovery of a small handful of papyri manuscripts, papyri manuscripts fragments, in diverse places in the Middle East, Origen's words would have been, would have had to have been accepted only on blind faith, since there was no actual evidence with the exception of an even later writer. So in that regard, Peter Sma goes on to say, similar statements are found in Jerome. Clearly, in Origen's estimation, Greek manuscripts with the tetragram written in Paleo-Hebrew were the best representatives of the Septuagint. There is, furthermore, evidence to suggest that Origen wrote the tetragram in his hexapla, and the only copies of the hexapla published today do not have the tetragram in its Greek columns. But not all early Greek manuscripts, Greek Septuagint manuscripts, had the tetragram or tetragrammaton in Hebrew characters. Some of them transliterated it into Greek, although not in the manner that we may expect, in one Dead Sea Scroll, 
4Q120, fragment 6 and 20, appears the form Ya-O. Ya-O, we saw that before, I-A-Omega, I-A-O, which appears to be a transliteration of what the King James Version Bible renders as Jehu, J-E-H-U. That's Ya'o. Sometimes it's Jeho, Jehoshaphat. Ya'o appears rather than the Hebrew form Yahweh. Ya'o seems to represent only the first three letters of the Tetragrammaton and would pronounce, perhaps be pronounced Yaho. This is a shortened form which is evident in names of Old Testament figures such as Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, where the Septuagint forms are Yoshaphat, Yosaphat, and Yoram. We should not be bothered by that, as evidently there were differences in dialect, even between Galileans and Judeans, and that would cause different interpretations in the way that letters would be sounded in transliteration into another language. The letter we know as H is problematic in Greek, as it does not exist in that language. In Koine Greek, the words which began with the vowel may have been marked with a breathing character, rough or smooth. This is also true of the words which began with the letter R. And the rough made it sound like the word began with the letter H. But the letter itself did not exist in Greek. So the character, which we use as H, was actually used to represent another letter, the vowel eta. So the lack of an H in Greek affected the transliteration of the name, which we write as Yahweh and also of Yahshua, as well as other biblical names, such as Noah or Hagar. Some names with an intervocalic H, meaning an H between two vowels, such as Ahaz, were written with a CH, where Ahaz became Akaz in the Septuagint. But others, such as Rahab or Mahalaliel, were not and the H was merely omitted. In his final paragraph, Peter Sma does not come to a definite conclusion, as the evidence for the Tetragrammaton in early Septuagint manuscripts is not really sufficient to arrive at one. He only says, Our evidence for the substitution of Curius by the tetragram, does not, at present, take us beyond the first century B.C. I will comment on that line momentarily, because I believe he got it backwards. We must therefore frankly admit that there is no sure way to link the beginnings of this process with Aristeus's floruit, meaning the writings in the letter of Aristeus, which indicate that already by his time in the early 2nd century B.C., the tetragram was 
being forbidden any use, that writers were forbidden from using the term, or speakers. But unlike previously proposed theories, the present suggestion rests on concrete textual evidence, which is traceable to well within a century of Aristeus's day. <clears throat> now, notice he used the phrase substitution of curious by the tetragram, when in fact it seems more appropriate to us to say substitution with curious for the tetragram. As in the Hebrew, the tetragram certainly did appear everywhere that the King James Version refers to the Lord. The Lord is not a translation of Yahweh, and therefore, curious is being used to replace the tetragram and not the other way around. The earliest of the relatively few ancient manuscripts of the Septuagint, which have been discovered by archaeologists, all attest to the presence of the tetragram or a transliteration of it, where the surviving manuscripts which have curious are not as old. They only date to the 4th century. BC, unless we want to count Origen's Hexapla as it is today, which isn't necessarily as he wrote it, but as it is today, and we only have fragments of that, and that would date to the third century. Aside from evidence in manuscripts, there are many archaeological discoveries which attest to the common use of the Tetragrammaton to refer to Yahweh, the God of Israel even by ordinary people or by the enemies of ancient Israel. Among these are the so-called Silver Scrolls, the Meshestela, or Moabite Stone, the 8th century B.C. Yahweh of Hosts inscription, the 9th century B.C. Kuntilit Ajrud inscriptions, ancient Egyptian inscriptions, and many more. But that is not our dispute here, and we only seek to establish the fact that at least some pious men of the Hellenistic or Roman periods did indeed see the importance of maintaining Yahweh, the actual name of God, even in Greek editions of the scriptures. The fact that Judeans began to suppress the name of Yahweh in the second century may have another witness besides the letter of Aristeus, and that is the indirect witness of the papyrus Rylands. This is a 2nd century BC papyrus in which only small fragments of what is Deuteronomy chapters 23 through 28 survive. Wherever the name of God is expected, this papyrus has a blank space. There are two separate theories which attempt to explain this. One is that wherever the tetragrammaton would appear, it was to be filled in by another scribe in ancient Hebrew, ancient Hebrew letters. But the task was never completed. And another is that wherever the tetragrammaton appears, it was removed. 
In any event, it shows that the insertion of the name of Yahweh into the manuscripts was given more than casual consideration by the scribes. There are two surviving Greek or Septuagint fragments which have variations of the Tetragrammaton rather than the Greek word kurios for Lord, which date to the first century BC. They are 4Q120, a Dead Sea Scrolls copy of Leviticus, and Papyrus Fuad 266, which is a Greek fragment of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 28, up to chapter 32, verse 7, which was discovered in Egypt. While 4Q120 has the shortened Greek transliteration, Yao or Yaho, Pfuad 266 has the tetragrammaton in modern square Hebrew characters. Additionally, there are two Septuagint fragments which have been discovered and dated to the same period which had the tetragrammaton written in archaic Hebrew characters, which are the Papyrus Oxyrhynchus 3522, a fragment of Job chapter 42 verses 11 and 12, and a group of papyri fragments from the Judean desert, which are designated as 8HEV12GR and which contain verses from at least six of the books of the Minor Prophets. Then, there is the late 1st century Papyrus Oxyrhynchus 5101, which contains fragments of several of the Psalms numbered after the manner of the Septuagint, and also has the Paleo-Hebrew Tetragrammaton rather than the Greek word curious or lord after that there is the late third century papyrus window bonensis grecus 39777 which also contains fragments of some of the psalms after the numbering of the septuagint but is in the greek translation of symmachus an alternate greek translation of the scriptures. It also has the tetragrammaton rather than the word curious. So there are five copies of Greek scriptures dating to the first century BC through the first century AD and one to the third century AD, which all clearly contain the Hebrew tetragrammaton or a transliteration thereof, rather than substituting the name of Yahweh for the title with the title curious. With the title curious. I'm sorry, I gotta watch my prepositions. Some scholars argue that because of this sound, but rather thin evidence, because let's face it, five papyri are a lot when there aren't any with, with the, the word curious, but five papyri really aren't very many at all. 
Some scholars argue that because of this sound but rather thin evidence, since there are no surviving Septuagint manuscripts from such an early period which have curious in place of the Tetragrammaton, that it was Christians who ultimately did the replacing, beginning in the second century. Then, to the contrary, at least one other academic has proposed that perhaps early versions of the New Testament books use the Tetragrammaton rather than Curious. But there is absolutely no evidence supporting that claim. <clears throat> of course, we would love to see that claim, but there's no evidence supporting that. So I'm, I'm not even mentioning his name. Rather, taking the words of Christ and the descriptions of Flavius Josephus concerning the name of Yahweh and its being forbidden by the Jews to be true, which writers such as Philo Judaeus have also corroborated. <coughs> I'm sorry. Taking the words of Christ and the descriptions of Josephus to be true, we have a somewhat different picture. Flavius Josephus, a Judean and a Levite, and also a member of the party of the Pharisees, had described some of the accounts of Moses in Egypt, where he wrote in Antiquities Book 2, that whereupon God declared to him his holy name. Now, Joseph, Josephus, as far as he interprets it, which had never been revealed to men before, concerning which it is not lawful for me to say any more. So we see that Josephus attests that he was not permitted by the law of the Judeans to utter or to write the name of Yahweh. The Jews outlaw the act to this very day, and they make a show of it, even in English, by writing G dash D, as they won't even utter the English title God, which is basically a farce because it's not the name of Yahweh. <clears throat> Later, in Antiquities Book 5, Josephus was describing the mitre and other garments of the high priests, and he wrote, a mitre also of fine linen surrounded his head, which was tied by a ribbon about which there was another golden crown, in which was engraved the sacred name of God. It consists of four vowels. Writing those words in Greek, Josephus must have meant four Greek vowels. At least 200 years before Josephus, and perhaps longer, the letter of Aristeus was written which is believed to be a work of historical fiction and to date from the 2nd century B.C., where it was passed off as a letter. It was an apology for Judaism and for the Septuagint, but which also avoided the use of the sacred name represented by the Tetragrammaton. Unless, as Peter Sma also pointed out, the text of Aristeus was changed by its later Christian copyists. It is also possible that some copies of the Greek preferred by the Judeans who forbid the use of the name of Yahweh were maintained, 
but no examples survived or have ever been found by archaeologists. Josephus followed the Book of Aristeus, as he called it, in his description of the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into what had become the Septuagint at Alexandria in the 3rd century B.C. Yet Josephus, probably following Aristeus himself, failed to mention the appearance of the Tetragrammaton in the pages of the Greek, the original Greek copy. That may also be accounted for in the fact that, as Josephus attests elsewhere, his use of the term was outlawed by the Jews. So if the Jews outlawed the use of the Tetragrammaton, or even any mere utterance of the sacred name, we must note that the apostles of Christ evidently grew up hearing the substitute titles Curios or Adonai, on every Sabbath that they attended the synagogues. Then Christ had told them, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. So, there are no extant Greek New Testament manuscripts which have the Tetragrammaton rather than Curios because it was forbidden. And therefore, eventually, the Greek copyists of the Old Testament also started substituting the name Yahweh with Curious. That's my theory. But Yahweh himself informs us of the importance of calling on his name, the name which he provided in the Old Testament. And identity Christians should also realize the importance to do that same thing. Therefore, where I read the following Old Testament passages in order to make my point clear, I will substitute Yahweh for Lord since the Hebrew of each passage contains the Tetragrammaton in those places and not the word Adonai. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 23, I am a God at hand, saith Yahweh, and not a God afar off. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith Yahweh? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith Yahweh? I have heard what the prophet said, that prophecy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophecy lies? Yeah, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. Then in Amos chapter 6 we read, And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burns him, to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, 
for we may not make mention of the name of Yahweh. Here we see that Yahweh did not speak well of those who would compel his people to forget his name. And when he gave us those words, his name was Yahweh, and it has not changed. Then, on a positive note, we read in Psalm 20, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of Yahweh our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save Yahweh. Let the king hear us when we call. And from Psalm 68, where the King James Version preserved the shortened form found in the Hebrew. Sing unto God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Then in Micah chapter 4, for all people will walk every one in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. As we said in the opening remarks of this presentation, anyone of any race or nation can worship a God, but it is certainly not our God. So we should distinguish him by using his name and not the mere title that the heathens may also use. Using the name Yahweh makes it absolutely certain as to which God we are speaking in reference, as the titles Lord and God do not mean the same thing to all of the peoples of the earth. Then again, in Micah chapter 5, in a messianic prophecy, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, the meaning of the name Yahweh, the eternal one, the being. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travails has brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great unto the ends of the earth. Then in Zephaniah chapter 3. For then will I return to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of Yahweh to serve him with one consent. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of Yahweh. That's verses 9 and 12. Then in Joel chapter 2, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as Yahweh has said, and in the remnant whom Yahweh shall call. The scriptures certainly do seem to offer clear refutations of the use of the substitute titles when we refer to Yahweh our God. The authors of the sectarian books of the Dead Sea Scrolls were anti-Roman 
envisioning a war and ultimate victory over the Empire of the Kitten, as they called them. It is my theory that this was the fourth sect of, Joseph, of which Josephus had spoken, founded by the tax protester Judas the Galilean a few decades before the ministry of Christ. If this is true, and I believe that it is, then the Tetragrammaton was used in the copies of Holy Writ that were employed and perhaps even copied by this group, which also expressed antipathy towards the Pharisees and Sadducees, seeing them as traitors to Israel and agents of Rome. So it may be evident that the Tetragrammaton was maintained in Scripture by dissenters who would not go along with the Jewish ploy to eradicate the name from society. While the apostles of Christ probably never used the Tetragrammaton in their writings, the scriptures indicate to us that we certainly should, and we should also be hostile to the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the modern Jews of today who continue to despise and do everything they can to eradicate the name of our God. The name of Yahweh, our God. Today, we can use that name. We can also be dissenters. Because the scribes and Pharisees no longer sit in the seat of Moses. Yahweh is the name of the God of Israel. According to his word, he is the only God of Israel. And if identity Christians understand that they are true Israel, they must realize that Yahweh is their distinct God, as opposed to all of the idols of the other people who do not have Yahweh for a God. He is the I Am of the Exodus account. He is the I Am of Isaiah, and he is the I Am of the gospel and professions of Christ. That's what's in a name, the truth, and therefore we must embrace the name if we are to walk in the truth. Thus we read in a prophecy of the last days, which is evidently parallel to the Camp of the Saints prophecy in Revelation chapter 20, that is found in Ezekiel chapter 38. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the nation shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. There are well over a hundred verses in the prophets where Yahweh defends his name and chastises those who despise it. We should follow that as an example. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel and the eternal enemy of every Jew. And good night.